I don't know how to use hashtags, right. but you know what I mean. Hashtag beach body. You know yeah. what's a beach body? A body on a beach. <laughs> <laughs> So this is an episode that I have been trying to sucker Anne into doing for quite some time to the point of almost lying to you, but you caught me in the lie in the pre-talk. She's like, what's the episode topic this morning? I'm like, we're talking about bodies, but I'm trying to figure out how to make it like relevant and interest to everyone else. And then you're giving me this look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the part where I said, um, it sounds to me more like we're talking about maybe fat or a food addiction or something because I'm pretty sure of the episode about bodies is relevant to mm, everyone. So it is a episode that does talk about intentional food control slash weight control slash that whole thing, which is boring to some people and triggering to some people. And Normally, I edit out all of Anne's disclaimers whenever we talk about a topic, and she's like, but I don't mean that this, and I don't want people to mishear me this, and I edit those down. <sighs> but this time, Anwen's doing the edit, which I think is fortunate, because I think the disclaimers that you're going to want in there, Anwen's going to agree with you. <laughs> that may be the case. I, I feel I have an ally in the editor this month. <laughs> talk to me about why you were so resistant to doing this as a topic. So I've been like, hey, Anne, you've lost 100 pounds. Everyone's going to want to hear about that. And every single time Anne's like, I don't want to do that topic. I don't want to do that topic. I don't want to do that topic. The biggest resistance, I think, is that I don't want to harm anybody with a body that is experiencing the judgment of other people on their body. Mm -hmm. Having been socially overweight since 12 say and by socially overweight I mean I look back at the pictures and I'm a perfectly average kid but I felt <laughs> like a moose my cultural surroundings encouraged that feelings the world has very strong opinions about fat people's bodies mm -hmm. I don't have any issue with the word fat so I am a fat person I'm five foot three and just over 200 pounds and that makes me technically fat and I look in the mirror and I see who I am. I know who I am. It is not a secret. Do people correct you? When I refer to myself, I am also yes. medically fat. I am obese, not just overweight. And when I call myself fat, people correct me. Yes. And that there, if you're taking down notes and you want helpful <laughs> tips, tip number one, if somebody calls themselves fat, don't correct them. So fat is not actually a morally laden word unless you say fat to somebody, right? It's like people, when I refer to myself as fat, they say, oh, no, but you carry it in the right spot. So you look great. And I'm like, I didn't say ugly. Right. <laughs> I said fat. And that's what fat people hear when you argue with them. It's just a descriptor to me. Yeah. Now, yeah. it's not the same for everybody. For some people, they've been tortured with that word their whole life. And so calling them fat, don't call somebody fat unless they use it first. There's another good tip. <laughs> These ads life tips. <laughs> I have many tips today. But for me, fat is just a word. But culturally, we have demonized it. And we mm. have decided a couple of things that can be erroneous. One, that being fat means you're not healthy. You can actually be fat and healthy. You can be fat and strong, fat and fit, fat and capable. Thin and unhealthy. <laughs> Thin and unhealthy. Yeah. You can be 
any size of body and be pretty much anywhere on the weight spectrum or on the health spectrum. They don't mm -hmm. automatically line up. And even if you are fat and unhealthy, it's nobody's business. You don't owe them your health. You don't owe them your thinness. You don't owe them any visible identity that just makes them more calm and comfortable and happy. It's funny because we don't, we do talk about, oh, well, it's about health, but we don't get into it with people about any other aspect of their health, except maybe smoking. Smoking, we do that with too. Mm -hmm. But most things, I, people don't say, can I have a look at your liver medication or your whatever it is you're managing. There is a question though for the loved ones of someone with any health concern. Mm -hmm. That might be the one exception to what I was saying is that if you're in relationship with someone and you have agreements about how you want to be together, Lori and I are ingested in, sorry, <laughs> ingested. Are ingested. That's a good fat word. <laughs> Lori and I are invested <laughs> in one another's longevity because we want to carry on and, and live a long time. Okay, I agree and I don't agree. Because I do understand that you would have an investment, but my experience is that there's no meaningful way to operationalize that investment. So when John and I were getting together and I was at the point where I very actively my whole life have had to manage calories and this is just part of my life until the last year. And John was sort of looking at this situation and trying to figure out what he's supposed to do to be helpful. I'm like, okay, I'm going to lay down the rules here. No matter how inconsistent I seem... Uh, you are to say nothing and never help. <laughs> right. So if I say, I'm not going to eat jujubes, and then you see me stopping jujubes in my mouth, you must say nothing. Because as soon as it becomes about whether or not you see me eat jujubes, now I will eat jujubes in secret. And right. that will just make it worse. So you are to just pretend like you don't see any inconsistencies and just totally ignore the thing. And if I want to talk about my jujubes, fine, you can go, oh, that's nice. Have a lovely day. But never attempt to make it any better because the only thing you can do is make it worse. And that's a great example of how you got a consensual agreement on this. You said, yes. this is a thing that's important to me, but I don't want you to be my jujube police. Which he appreciated because he cannot imagine being someone who would want to have that many jujubes in their mouth. Yes. Yes. Because he would be done with jujubes at a certain point. And it's funny, like <laughs> I have been doing a program called Brightline Eating for a few years now. And in this program, one of the things that the creator, Susan Pierce Thompson, says all the time is keep your eyes on your own plate. Mm -hmm. So that is also great advice for all humans. So <laughs> it's not my business what they do unless they are actively harming me. What is so interesting to me about that is now that it's been since April, since I've had desserts or candy, I watched you lose all this weight and pretty much say nothing. And I knew it had to do with sugar. And I knew I needed to deal with sugar, but you had never volunteered it. And when I knew I needed to deal with sugar, I came to you for science and to explain the things and you explained and answered all my questions. And then over the course of several months, I was like, oh my God, this feels like I've been let out of prison. And this several months later, it took a while. And then you were like, yep, sure feels like I've been let out. Yep, that's this in my experience as well. Let out of prison. Yes, I share this feeling you are describing. And I have... A challenge around not getting evangelical, yes. which I have noticed that you seem to never get evangelical, but I do. But people here, if I get excited about the lack of sugar, people will start to explain why they still eat sugar. And there is zero judgment. That does not ever occur. I feel a bit of evangelical and is a little offensive. If there is anyone who understands 
what it is like to eat lots and lots of sugar. It's me and there is zero judgment and I totally understand why a person would keep doing that. So that's been kind of an interesting thing for me. And this is one of the reasons that I rolled over and let you do this to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't want to harm anybody who might feel judged by what they're hearing. We mean no judgment on anybody's, right? And I, mm-hmm. I understand that there's a fat liberation movement, which I am in affinity with, but it doesn't fit me well. I am dealing with addictive behaviors around food. Unchecked, I am a compulsive eater. It causes me a lot of pain, a lot of shame, a lot of upset. The size of my body is not the issue to me as much as the compulsive eating. I do this program and I will do it until I die, I think because it stops the cycle of compulsive eating, which means it breaks the biggest shame in my life. That feeling of being at a party, standing beside the food and eating until it's empty is a devastating feeling. I'm smart, I'm capable, I've raised you know, decent kids, I've got a good job, I have a loving partner. How is it that I can't stand beside a bowl of crunchy, salty things and stop eating? I will also, not crunchy salty things, couldn't give a crap about those, but if you put a bowl of Skittles in front of me, I will eat for an inordinately long time. There will, though, reach a point where I won't want to eat anymore. And that point is way before the point when that would occur for you. Did you not ever feel like you were clearly dealt a different hand than most people? I've heard of people who stop eating cookies because (laughs) they had one and that was enough. Um, And this is something that's changed in ferocity over different stages of my life. And I think the longer you live in diet culture and keep trying to lose, and for me, I could be successful losing. Half a dozen times in my life, I have easily, really easily lost 50 pounds by just white knuckling it, using willpower, having a plan, following the plan. I'm a good rule follower. And then something shifts and it starts going the other direction. And I always Mm -hmm. end up heavier than I started. So that's diet culture. If you're going to lose weight because you think the size of your body is the wrong size of body, and then you work at it, work at it, work at it, and then you finally think, oh, I'm okay here. And then you let your guard down against this dieting thing. (laughs) One day you wake up and you're 10 or 20 or 50 pounds heavier than you were before you started. I think diet culture is evil. There are lots of well-intentioned people who are participating in it. I've tried so many reasonable diets, medical diets, follow the food guide thing, which by the way keeps changing. So how the hell do you know that's ever going to (laughs) work? And fad diets and ridiculous diets and choosing to just do desperate things because I was desperate for a particular outcome. And the more I did that, I think the more my compulsive eating escalated because you deprive yourself, you feel bad about yourself. It's always an experience of judgment and I'm not good enough. And then the response to that is to sit in the car and eat three people's worth of food when nobody's looking because I feel so bad. Those things aren't moral things. If you lived in a house full of six people and you ate all the food and didn't give any to the children, that's a moral thing. Mm -hmm. But what you eat and how you look and how you feel is nobody's business. One of the challenges that I have struggled in watching you lose the weight is that you almost come into the reverse a little bit because I can see that you so desperately don't want to give the message of well, it's hard to be heavy, but if you're just disciplined and you don't eat sugar like me, you right. could lose that weight. Right. You're so desperate to avoid that, that the fact that 
you struggled to walk and you wanted to be able to walk. And in order to get new knees, you lose a certain amount of weight and you didn't like compulsive eating. Like, it's almost like you're ashamed of that, right? Like, it's hard to get you to talk about that. It's tricky because I've traveled a long way in a different direction. So I had this experience once years ago when my kids were smaller and I went to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, which is 12 step for food. And you get people who are on all the spectrum of eating disorders or just struggling with food. And so they're all body shapes and sizes in the room. But one of the commonalities is that it is really common that everybody around the table feels inadequate or not good enough or is struggling with some kind of self-esteem issue. And I can't tell you which is the chicken and which is the egg Mm. because everybody is different and we all have our own stories. But when you talk about AA and an alcohol addiction and we talk about people needing to hit rock bottom before they have this awakening that changes something in them or this desperation that changes something in them that they decide to do the drastic thing which is to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. In Overeaters Anonymous they say that's actually not the same that they've been at the bottom for so long they need building up. Yeah. And because there is so much judgment and because issues around food are so closeted and so hidden and so harmful and so painful and can be tied to any number of things that people have had the crap kicked out of them around it. And they feel so bad about themselves. And think about how hard it is to fix anything when you feel like garbage. And it's such a hard thing to fix, like statistically, right? I I was advocating you look into surgical solutions because I'm like, look, the statistics of how often this gets fixed in people with that much weight are not in your favor, right? Right, like you have the garbage kicked out of you and it is an empirically hard problem to solve. Right. So I have two things I want to say. First, I sat in that room. I looked around the room. I'm new. I'm scared. I don't talk. Mm -hmm. Um, I have tears in my eyes the whole time. There was a sign on the whiteboard that said, welcome home. And I burst into tears when I read it. I like I want to burst into tears now just thinking about that moment. And I listened to these eight or 10 people talk about their story or their week or whatever. And I thought, you are so lovable and you feel so bad about yourself. And I could watch one after the other, no matter what the story, no matter what the issue, how easy it was to love every one of those people and not one of them felt like they could love themselves. They felt unlovable and hopeless and helpless. And I got in my car and I sat there and I cried and cried and cried. And I thought, why is it that I can go around this table and look at all these people and see them as inherently lovable and have this huge amount of compassion for them and not me? Do you know the answer? If you had told me that I thought I wasn't lovable, I would have argued with you because, you know, on one hand, I think I'm adorable and fun and why shouldn't everybody love me? But when I think back, you know, how many times did I feel like, why does nobody love me? Which really meant, why do I not love me? And Mm -hmm. I had this huge epiphany that if I could love them, I could also love me. Now, (laughs) full disclosure, I never went back. (laughs) I never went back. That was it. But... Also, I feel like I got what I went for. Now, that sent me on a path of, I need to learn to love me and not, people will say regardless of what size you are, and regardless is a word that just makes me want to hit things. Would you prefer irregardless? (laughs) (laughs) And at least I can critique your grammar in my head, although irregardless is technically now a word, so. uh. (laughs) Regardless means, even if you're fat, I still love you. And I was like, 
no, no, like inclusive of whatever body you're in, because all the bodies are mm-hmm. good bodies. So mm-hmm. when people say, you know, you're welcome here, regardless of who you love or what you wear or what size you are or who you believe is in charge of the universe, that's such, it, I don't know, it just feels like judgment to me. We will tolerate you even if you're wrong, is what I hear <laughs> when I hear the word regardless. So anyway, I had that experience. And it sent me on a path of, I need to learn to love myself, which didn't make me thinner, which at the time I thought was the goal, but it did make me Mm. more peaceful and content and happy. And I had a much better Mm -hmm. life when I even liked myself or loved myself at all. Can I tell you one of my body acceptance stories? Sure. So I had, was fairly accepting of my size, but I'm an unusual shape. I have a very large bum, a tiny waist, huge bum. And I'd always been really self-conscious about it. Until a few years ago, the brief dating period before John, I was dating a guy who really liked that body type. And I remember asking him sort of on a lark, like, what kind of porn do you watch? And he said, people with big bums. I've told you that's my favorite thing. I was like, I think you were lying. Like, I assumed you were saying that to me. Nice. He hands <laughs> me his nice. phone. He's like, look through my browser history. And so I, I pull up this the browser history. I'm like, oh. They look just like me. And I'm scrolling through and I'm like, oh my goodness, these comments, they're so affirming. (laughs) Have you read these comments? How kind they are. And he's like, no, no, I don't read the comments. I didn't know there were comments. From there, I really realized that bodies aren't, it's not like a scale of hotness where like that person's a seven or that person's a nine. It's more like, it's like with foods, right? There are pizza which lots more people like pizza than asparagus, but some people adore asparagus. Right. And that really, interestingly, (laughs) the affirming nature of that kind porn (laughs) made me finally understand that it really is the case that bodies are really just different and it's a matter of finding the person that you match with rather than going to all the work of changing yours to fit what you were imagining. Yeah, and aren't we all culturally trained to idealize something that very few people actually manifest in the world? Yep. And the commercials are that ideal type. But when you go to something like porn, people are picking the thing that they want and they're looking for grandmothers. Right. And this is not advice I would give generically to anyone because <laughs> there's things that could be very upsetting. But have a friend maybe find I really lucked out and it was really affirming. But I can imagine that that could have gone off the rails as well. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> So my devastating story was I made peace with this body and carried on and had a good life. I have a good life. I have a good Mm -hmm. wife, a good job, a good home, a mediocre dog. (laughs) (laughs) All dogs dogs are good dogs, 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 man. And this one is Anne. (laughs) All cats are assholes. But then I needed knees. So I'm actually super healthy. My cholesterol is good. My blood pressure is good. Like my Framingham heart Mm -hmm. score test is excellent. I am the healthiest member of my extended family, which is ironic because I'm the largest one. (laughs) So I didn't have a problem with health. I had some issues with stamina. I couldn't probably do gymnastics, but it was not my life desire to do gymnastics. (laughs) But then my knees started to fail and that's where health impacted me. And so the solution for knees that have no cartilage left in them is to replace them. But the system here in Edmonton, you go through the bone and joint clinic and they decide whether or not you get them. And they said, no, they said, you need new knees. I said, okay, great. When can we do that? They said, nope, you have to lose a hundred pounds before we will put you on the list. Which mother they know what people's (laughs) statistical odds are. They're a bunch of doctors. 
I'm just saying you need to lose 100 pounds is, I mean, I recognize I'm talking to someone who has done it, but as a general rule, a medically unrealistic statement to make to a there person. There is scientific evidence that a heavy person will have a better, healthier, more fit life if you give them knees when they need them at their heavy point than if you require them to lose weight first. Also, we don't say to the smokers, we're not going to take out your lung cancer Actually, until you quit smoking. There are some doctors who do. <laughs> oh, there are oh some God. doctors who say, I won't operate on your heart unless you quit smoking first because they feel like that's the only leverage they have. That's horrifying to me. That's like when they wouldn't give you birth control pills until you got your pap smear. This is my body and I'll cervical cancer it up to all high heaven if I want. Do your goddamn well, job. Well, my mom, as a young woman raising four children that she got in the marriage and two more children that she had on her own, wanted birth control. And the doctor who had a religious objection to that said no. So we put our morality on other people's bodies all the time. And it's bad enough that I can walk down the street and, and teenagers or young adults, mostly men, but sometimes women, hang their bodies out the side of the car and moo at me oh. that is yeah that's helpful thanks buddy i hope you feel better do you feel sad and embarrassed or do you feel filled with rage i think i feel shame and rage at the same time but the shame always wins oh used to Jeez. when that happened it doesn't anymore i'm a long way from there but they still do it it just doesn't hurt the same way i have changed in how things impact me with shame that's wonderful i don't feel shame when somebody harms me i think you're a jerk when did that change I think it started to change the 15 years ago when I had that experience with the OA meeting where I thought I need to learn to love mm -hmm. myself. It started there, but it changes by the day too, right? Depending on how you feel about yourself. If you've had a bad day one way or another, it's easy to turn all the meanness on yourself and think, you know what? They're right. I'm no good. I'm useless. You don't have the sense that you accomplish this thing that almost nobody ever accomplishes that insulates you from judgment about that very same issue? So... Back to the moment of doom when the doctor mm -hmm. said to me, you have to lose 100 pounds before we will give you new knees. Were you mad at him? I burst into tears. Aww. I said, you are condemning me to disability, mm -hmm. right? I was already disabled. I was already walking with a cane. It hurt really bad. It hurt me to stand and preach. I was at the verge of having to figure out how to sit and preach. And I had shame around that. So he was not just disability, also pain. The tons of pain. He was leaving you in pain. He was leaving me in pain because there isn't medication that adequately deals with it and doesn't destroy your heart. And he was committing me to a further disability, which again, I don't want to harm my disability friends. If you need mm -hmm. a scooter, thank the universe we have scooters. If you mm -hmm. need a wheelchair, thank the universe we have wheelchairs. I took way too long to use a cane because I had this moral burden on myself, right? I shouldn't need that. I've mm -hmm. done this to myself. This is awful. The cane cut my pain in half. So like smarten up, kid. Anwin now uses a cane and she is too young and doesn't look quite disabled enough. Wait, 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 wait. She is not too young. She is young. No, no, I was saying this is what people see when they look at her. But people who need a cane are the right age for needing a cane. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But people look at her and think you're too young and you don't look in pain enough. I don't see other markers or whatever. So uh, people give her sideways looks sometimes with the cane, but she said the one thing is she goes, man, and then when they're talking to me, they converse with my cane constantly. <laughs> I miss the days of people talking to my boobs. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, the best thing about using a cane for me was people in the airport are really, really nice to you. Oh, really? I really learned my lesson there. I resisted it for so long. And it turns out people hold the door. People get out of your way. People ask you, would you like a wheelchair? Which it took me a long time to say yes to. But traversing those many miles in the airport, I have ended up at my gate or at my taxi in tears so many times because I was too stubborn to have help. I had that when I read Hepatitis A. I should have asked for a wheelchair and I ended up standing in lines I couldn't stand in. Yes. And I wouldn't take one because I wasn't the type of person who needs a wheelchair. Right. right. <laughs> because you can't be that for a month and then not later. Like <laughs> it's a fixed identity. Like what was I thinking? The insipid moral burden we place on ourselves that we don't even know we're doing until later when we look back at it and think, what was I thinking? Clearly I was not. It's just a tool, not an identity. Right. <laughs> like... The fact that I was becoming disabled was a thing I was already making peace with. Mm -hmm. I knew I couldn't stand in a lineup anymore. So I was either going to have to get a cane with a seat that could hold me so I could sit. Or I would have to start using a wheelchair or a scooter or something. And I, I expected because waitlist times are long here, that I would probably need one of those options before I got my knees. Mm -hmm. But he was telling me, also, I had to lose 100 pounds. I was sure I couldn't do it. Plus, I watched the research, which says this is a chronic health condition and there is no adequate solution. Mm -hmm. That's what the specialists in bariatric medicine will tell you. There is no adequate solution. The best they can do is to offer you, by their opinion, is to offer you life-altering gastric surgery. With many complications. A few people float through and have a very positive experience. And, and no judgment against that either. It is what medically is considered the most effective option right now and no guarantee. Mm -hmm. So here's my embarrassing story. I quit sugar. I quit eating sugar for a year, a year and a half. I was in a good space mm -hmm. in my life. I thought I did it as a diet right? Diet mm -hmm. mentality. I just wanted to lose some weight. I quit eating sugar. I felt pretty good. I was super healthy, happy, having a good life. But I became just objectionable. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was so offensive because I became the prophet of sugar is evil. I felt so much better when I didn't eat sugar that I decided that sugar was the root of all evil. And so I became the sugar police. So did I keep my eyes on my own plate? No, I did not. Was I offensive and awful? Yes, I was. Did I probably harm people in the process? Absolutely. My mm -hmm. wife, who was not my wife at the time, remembers <laughs> that time. And she gets this very concerned look on her face and was like, you were horrible. <laughs> so when I decided I was going to do Bright Line Eating and I explained it to her and she said, are you going to be that thing again? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. And that's one of the reasons I don't say anything, right? That's yep. one of the reasons. I have this experience of being such a prophet of doom. And it was because it meant so much in my life. And I was trying to share that value with other people, but in a horrible, horrible way. So yeah. I don't want to push it on anybody. I think the difference maybe between you now and you then is you really don't seem to think that everybody should stop sugar. And for me, it has not been an overwhelming yeah. weight loss thing. I'm not that unhappy with the weight that I am. I was unhappy with the fact that my weight kept going up and I had to do a ton of work to keep it from going up quickly. And I had decided not to give a shit about this stuff 
three years prior, I was like, screw it. I'm not going to spend my whole life counting calories. I'm just going to live my life. And then my weight was going up faster. Right, right. <laughs> it was like, so now I'm in this prison where either I'm spending all day every day counting these calories or I'm going to be in a body that has a lot of trouble moving. And I love moving. Right. Many of my activities are movement-based. The amount of fat I am is the amount of fat I like to be. I like how this amount of fat looks. I don't want more fat than this. I don't like less fat than this either. I discovered when I had hepatitis A. So I felt like I was in this prison situation. And then when I talk to you about it, you're like, uh, yes, no, you can get out of prison. <laughs> it's like, how come you have not mentioned? If this feels like prison to you, there is a key. <laughs> yeah. And you just laid it out. Like, this is what it's like to get off. These are the things that you may need to do. I don't have to do half the things you right. need to do. Or I don't have to plan my foods in the same way you do or worry about portions. Right. And Lori can eat a cookie and be happy. <laughs> Lori doesn't have to do any of this shit. <laughs> I can not eat any cookies and be happy. I can eat one cookie and need 12, right? And that's, I just have no control over that chemical thing that happens in me. Now, if I am happy to eat 12 cookies and it isn't hurting me, that's okay. But it started to really hurt me because I was having trouble carrying my sore body around on my sore knees. So when they gave me the, the doom that you have to lose 100 pounds before we'll put you on the list. I hate that man so much. And I really think it's gatekeeping and mean. And I know there are knees. And the science says, mm -hmm. if you give me that knee while I can still get around, I will heal stronger and better and faster and have a much more mobile life. But they were going mm -hmm. to say I had to lose 100 pounds, which realistically, unless you do something drastic, takes at least two years mm -hmm. before they would even put me on the list. Turns out the next guy I saw a year later was nicer. I had lost 50 pounds and he put me on the list and it still took over two years from that day to get my knees. But the two things I did when he gave me the doom, first, I felt so depressed. I fell into this pit of despair because there was no reasonable solution to this problem. If I had to lose 100 pounds and I'd never been able to do it before. So three things. One, I got really depressed. <laughs> Two, I signed up to get access to the bariatric clinic because I thought it was my only hope. I really fell into the pit of despair. So Another nice thing about waitlists in Canada was it took me over two years to get into the bariatric clinic. So in the meantime, I thought <laughs> I will just do the best I can to see what I can do. And then it was colleagues. Somebody asked a question in a minister's Facebook group that said, you know, they wanted or needed to lose some weight. Had anybody, what did anybody recommend they'd been successful with? And a couple of colleagues just said bright line eating. That's it. Hmm. They did not explain it. They did not proselytize. They did not say sugar is evil, you fool. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. They just said bright line eating. That is the only time that has ever popped up in my life until I joined like the bright line eating community mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. So nobody has ever said that in my world in a way that is, if I didn't see that post that day, I wouldn't have found this. So that's, I guess, wow. another reason why I'm here today. So I Googled it. I got the book from the library. And when she talks about the addictive experience of eating, I sat sobbing in my car listening to this audiobook, Aww. just sobbing because she was telling my story. But should we tell them how Bright Line Eating works? Should we interrupt this saga? I think you should give them the, basic, the basics of it. All right. There are no BLE police, right? You get to make your own decisions. If they work, they work. If they don't, well, maybe you want to make a different one. 
I poached the science and then designed my own thing. Those many years ago, quitting sugar was enough for me, right? It might have been enough for me. It's the years of reckless up and down crash and burn behavior, I think, that pushed me further into this place. Mm -hmm. Bright lines are actually a legal term. And they are lines that you never cross. There is just no exception. It is always wrong to cross this line. So it comes out of the legal community. So bright line eating is there are four lines you never cross. No sugar, no flour, three meals and only three meals. So it's a no snacking program. And that you make a commitment to what you're going to eat the next day, the amounts you're going to eat. And that's what you eat. You plan ahead. You choose what you're going to do tomorrow. And then that's what you do. So people will say, today I'm going to eat only and exactly what I committed to last night. And it that can feel a little culty if that's triggering for you. Let it go. Let it go. I think the whole thing actually does have a slight culty feel. And there is an element of like, that's what makes you believe you can do it. But there are times when I listen to her and think, this has a bit of a culty feel. Her science is quite solid. Right. <laughs> but the way she talks has a bit of that, which I actually find kind of helpful. It doesn't bother me, but I could see how there are people who might be reactive to it. Absolutely. And she's all about you create an identity as a bright line eater. And there's excellent science that shows, like, for instance, <laughs> if you want to run, if you say that you want to run and you write nice little goals about it, it is a completely different experience than if you shift your identity to being a runner. Yeah. So she's saying if you like this, if this works for you, you want to make it your identity if you want it to last. I know that if I sit down with a bowl of crunchy, salty food, I'm still going to eat it till it's empty. Mm -hmm. This didn't cure that in me. So following these lines and saying these are things I do and these are things I don't do prevents the behavior. It's like alcoholism because once I start, I can't stop. It triggers horribleness in my brain. So I had to white knuckle through the beginning of letting it go. Yeah. And then I never have to think about it again, unless yeah. I start to wobble on my lines and decide, oh, it doesn't matter if I have a snack. It doesn't matter if I eat more or different than what I said I was going to eat as long as it's still bright foods, all those kinds of things. Those aren't moral judgments. Those are chemical compositions. So, and I couldn't go all in at first. I quit sugar and did really well until I didn't. And then I quit flour too and did really well until I didn't. And then I thought, oh, crap, I guess I have. I was really resistant to lines three and four. I thought, oh, yep. crap, I have to do it. And when I did it, then that's when the magic started to happen. I have the bright line philosophy. For me, it is desserts and candies. Just not ever. Nope. None. But that is my only bright line that I must not do no matter what. And then other things I'm playing with and learning about my brain and whatever. But none of the other things am I compulsive about, like... I can say, I want to eat this many vegetables and then I can work at it, whatever. Right. There's no, nothing can get tripped up. But what I have noticed is that after a few months, my brain gave up on suggesting it. Right. <laughs> like, and then what happens is instead of the stimulus of seeing a Mars bar causing you to want to eat a Mars bar, which you think a stimulus causes a response, but there's an in, in the middle, right? Which is why when I see a cigarette, I don't have the urge to smoke, right? There's a piece mm -hmm. of you that's in that. Now, when I see a Mars bar, the response that my brain has learned is I feel all good about that I've made these choices <laughs> and that I no longer crave Mars bars anymore. What an accomplishment. You give yourself a brain sticker. <laughs> so the, the visual of the Mars bar still makes me happy. <laughs> right. But it's an entirely different response. And my brain has just literally given up and I have no, no interest in that anymore. Right. So the happy middle to my story is when I had lost 50 pounds, the next 
surgeon that I saw put me on the list for knees. And were they nice? He was lovely. And he saw somebody like, I guess, you know, they all have their own little tests in their brain. Other guy was like, it was just a number. You had to hit a certain BMI or he wasn't letting you in through the gate. This guy was, I see you working really hard at being as healthy as possible and your recovery will be easier if you are smaller. So he said, I'll put you on the list right now. It's still going to take about a year. But if you can, keep going because it will be so much easier for you to get up. You have to walk. When you have a knee replacement, you walk on that new joint hours after surgery, right? They get you out of bed. They make you put your damn runners on. And then you have to walk with a walker. And he said, it's just going to be easier for you to like bend over and tie your shoes and Mm -hmm. hoist yourself up on your arms. I did a lot of exercises, so I had enough arm strength to lift myself around. But all of those things are back to say, I could have also done it at 324 pounds, mm -hmm. right? I could have done those things. I could have done arm exercises and hoisted myself out of my bed. But I did get the knees. I did lose the 100 pounds. I did also get into the bariatric clinic. Mm -hmm. And this is a story I haven't publicly told before. So oops, here we go. <laughs> Interestingly enough, my first appointment, my only one in person with the bariatric clinic was in March of 2020. So I was there the last day they were physically open before they closed for the pandemic. And they've been mm -hmm. online ever since. Wow. So I went in and I had the huge assessment and they looked at me and I had, I hadn't lost a hundred pounds by then, but I was about, I don't know, 85 or 90 or something. And they said I had already achieved the outcome they would have been looking for. Wow. Right. So if I had bariatric surgery, they couldn't actually guarantee that I would lose any more weight because bariatric surgery doesn't take you down to what the societal norms tell you you should be. It just takes you down mm -hmm. a significant chunk. My fear was not only did I have to lose the 100 pounds to get my knees, but I had to keep it there to get the second one. Mm. I thought it was going to be another year before I got the second one. I was lucky and got it only four months later. Yeah. But I was afraid that I would drop 100 pounds, get a knee, and that was it. And I'd be back at 310 pounds the next week, which that actually happens with me, and that I wouldn't get the second knee. And so I was still going because I was so afraid. Are you afraid now that you've got both knees? 10%. You're 10% afraid? Yeah. There's a saying in Bright Line Eating that you are always only two feet from the ditch. Oh. And when you're in the ditch, you're only two feet from the road. <laughs> so the thing, like any recovery program from an addiction, alcoholics are still an alcoholic. Yep. And you have to spend the rest of your life controlling that, limiting it in that way, right? There are circumstances where you might end up having a drink. And then that could start a whole cascade of difficulty. So I kept going because I was still afraid. I didn't have complete confidence in this. It was only after I had the second knee that I had to make the decision whether or not I would actually still have surgery. And I was still thinking about it. And part of that is how deeply ingrained the diet culture is that it's bad to be fat. Mm -hmm. And part of it was just this lifetime of believing that I could never control or contain this problem that I had. Yeah. And it was a huge moment for me when I called them and said, I'm good. I'm okay. Did they push back? Nope. No, they didn't. Nice. Now, there's an age limit here for bariatric surgery is 65. The lovely internist I worked with said, look, you're doing great. Yeah. You know what to do. I'll send notes to your doctor. You're handling your life really well. Oh. 
And if you want to come back, just make sure you don't wait till later than 62 to get on the list. Right. Right. To come back. And so she was very kind. The nurse was nervous. I told the nurse first and she like sent an emergency message to the doctor. (laughs) But the doctor was really great. So funny thing happened on the way to my new life, though. Months later, I get a phone call. It was middle of September this year. And it's... Alberta Health. And they're calling to tell me they have a surgery date for me. For knees or bariatric? What, what are we operating on? How many knees do I have? Because <laughs> I've been through this twice, right? I got a surgery date for a knee. It's very exciting when they call you to say you get a knee. <laughs> but less exciting than the third time. And that had been my real fear was that I'd get the bariatric surgery before I got the knee. But it turns out that during COVID, they went to life and limb. And Mm -hmm. even though some people are having bariatric surgery because they're going to die if they don't get medical help, that was not considered life, which is also horrible. Anyway, I guess the clinic didn't notify Alberta Health and take me (laughs) off the wait list for the surgery. I don't know whose job it was. Maybe it was my job. I don't know. But she's like, well, for your gastric bypass, ma'am, we have a date for your gastric (laughs) bypass. I said, oh, that's really sweet. Thank you very much. But you can give it to the next person on the list. I'm good. I'm happy. Like, I I love my body. I'm happy. I'm content. And I got my knees. Then I spent a week kind of waffling around thinking, wow, (laughs) what if I changed my mind? Like, I could, maybe I should call her back and say, can I, can I just know what the date was so I know how much longer I have to think about it? I don't think that's how OR bookings work. (laughs) It isn't how OR bookings work. It had already gone to the next person. And I am so happy for them that they have got their date because... It is so important to people to get the medical care that they need. Absolutely. So, yeah. Anyway, that's my long story was I'm 10%. I I 100% believe that this program is the right life for me. I don't ever feel like I'm on a diet. I eat lots of calories. I eat delicious food. But I know that if I eat flour and sugar, I will lose my mind. I will literally lose it. So I'm just really, really happy to be here. And I know because for me, it is an active addiction that it's right there waiting for an opportunity to strike. Mm -hmm. That as long as I hold my lines like those legal lines you do not cross, bad things happen when you cross those lines. And I am not so susceptible that... You know, if there's accidentally sugar in a salad dressing on my salad at yeah. a restaurant, that doesn't that doesn't actually do me in. My mom, my mom was heavy. She's an entirely different body type than me. She was round in the body and long skinny legs and long skinny arms and um, um, kind of a ice cream cone shape. Yep. And I uh, carry my weight equally all over my body. So I'm usually 50 pounds heavier than people would attribute to me because I have just spread it so equally around. So we're not having the same genetic experience. We certainly had the same situational experience. I was raised (laughs) that food is love and the solution to all things here, have an ice cream and a bowl of cheesies and watch TV and you'll feel better. Um, But my mom, somebody would say something about your mom is fat. And I would say, my mom's not fat. She's fluffy. (laughs) And she thought that was the sweetest thing in the world. She loved it. And I think, what a harsh culture we live in when that's actually good for her, right? Because if you called me that, I would be like, look, first of all, I am not ashamed of who I am. And second of all, what's this fluffy crap? Like, I'm fat and we don't have to discuss it, but let's not make up cutesy bunny words as if the truth was bad. It's also funny how different things burrow in differently. Like when you were telling that story, I thought about 
the time that your youngest Casey, who had been mm-hmm. homeschooled, went to elementary school. And one of the bully kids said, your mom is gay. And Casey said, well, but people can be gay. Like, what the hell? And the bully went, oh, sh- your mother's gay? Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh, God. I accidentally <laughs> called a gay person gay as a slur. No, no, no. I'm right. <laughs> what I meant. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it was just a generic insult. Turned out he didn't care. Or when you went down to the American border and you tried to go across with your wife, Lori, and the woman was like, we don't do that down here. And you're like, actually, you do. Right how much those slurs have no effect on you and right and that's true of me too like some judgment sinks way down and in my family weight was a big thing and so I do feel weight but we were not an appearance oriented family we never wore matching clothes or clothes without stains <laughs> you in the them bond traps. makeup <laughs> brushed or cut our hair with any frequency flossed our teeth none of that stuff okay we flossed <laughs> but well my sister flossed. I didn't floss. <laughs> the things that sink in for people, I there's sometimes it feels like there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. And yeah. some things people can be the meanest they are and they just slide off your back and other things they dig well, right in. What hurts you today may not hurt you 20 years later or vice versa. And this this stuff changes all the time. And like for the most part, you can moo at me out your car and I'll think, I feel so sad for you. Yeah. How is that not heartbreaking that that's your story? So it doesn't hurt me the same way at all. I mean, it would hurt me if my kid mooed at me. That would be yeah. different. But my kids don't do that. Thank yeah. goodness. The one did tell people at school you were a lesbian, though. You have to be careful. Yeah. And you know what? That's not an identity I actually used. I go with queer. But because he was so proud of it, I was lesbian for those years. You see, it mattered so much to him. It didn't harm me. Do you feel proud that you had a very hard problem and you solved it? I, f- I guess... I feel hmm. and I you feel didn't more, give up more lucky than I feel proud. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we are more motivated in life by pain, avoiding pain than we mm-hmm. are about achieving reward for most people most mm-hmm. of the time. And I am avoiding pain by doing this. I don't know that pride is the word for avoiding pain. I'm grateful that I have a way to avoid pain. I did not have it before I found this program. Do you feel relieved? Yes. Yes. I feel grateful and relieved and lucky, and I am completely aware that I could screw it up at any time, which (laughs) feels like a good constant pressure on my brain. And, you know, I lost, after I lost the 100 pounds, and then after I got that second knee, I've definitely eased up a lot. I'm not in it to hit some magical fairy weight, because that's back to that cultural construct again, but I am in it to hold the compulsive eating at bay. Mm-hmm. That just was so awful. So this feels like an antidepressant to me. It feels yeah. like a medical solution that I wish I didn't need it, but I am so grateful for the science that gave me this opportunity to be alive. I'm Liz James. I'm Ann Barker. And we are so glad that you could join us. You've been listening to The Cracked Cup with Ann Barker and Liz James. We're so grateful to every one of you for listening. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters who literally saved the podcast this month because I decided to quit because I hated editing so much. And then Ann pointed out that through your generous support, we have enough to both pay our hosting fees and now get help with the editing. So seriously, 
thank you more than ever could not do this without you because you have no idea how much editing it takes for me in particular to sound even this rambly and incoherent if you want to be a patron it's only about three dollars a month you will get access to special content sometimes that's zoom gatherings sometimes it's stickers or printables there's also a cracked cup facebook group for patrons and there's the knowledge that if it weren't for you there would be no podcast which i hope you file under good thing in your brain so announcement about the services, we are taking a hiatus for a bit because I have some grant deadlines, which is sad from a services perspective, but good from a podcast perspective because what I'm working on is more podcast. Although it is different podcast, it's a behind the scenes stories from becoming a you with Anne in the early days and ministerial formation and then dumping that at online adventures. And if you wish the podcast were more frequent, this might be something that will give you a bit of a fix. I'm about halfway through this and should have more information about it next month. The Cracked Cup was produced by Liz James and Anne Wendyko. Due to the aforementioned generosity of the Patreon donors, it is also edited by Anne Wendyko this month. The music is by Blue Dot Sessions, and thank you so much for listening and for all of your support.